Welcome to another episode of Reviews and Done, your number one spot for R&B and hip-hop interviews. What's going on, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn of Reviews and Done, back with another interview with one of my favorite artists, whose music I grew up on. Now, tonight's guest is the man behind classic songs such as Oh, Sheila, Tonight, and Love You Down. That's right, folks. I'm talking about the very talented, very underrated Mr. Melvin Riley Jr., lead singer of Red to the World. <laughs> I want folks to know that Mr. Riley is much more than those three songs. Mr. Brother's been in the game for 30-plus years. He's worked with Jamie Foxx. He's written numerous songs for other artists and all that. You know, so we're going to get on all that. So, everybody, welcome to the line, Mr. Melvin Riley, Jr. I am doing wonderful, man. Uh, rehearsals have been going great. We've got an upcoming show July 10th uh, with Moore's Day in the Time and Cameo to uh, help fight against COVID. And, uh, man, we are excited to go ahead and, and get rolling. That's right. That's that's the show that's going to be on uh, pay-per-view, if pay-per-view. I'm not mistaken, correct? Right, pay per view July tenth, and it's um twenty dollars for the um for the show. I believe it is. I believe the pay per view is just twenty dollars. I believe so. Cool, cool. So yeah, we'll um make sure to shout that out before we um finish the interview up. You know, it sounds like it's gonna be a dope show. I'm a huge fan of it. your music. I'm also a huge fan of uh. More staying the time. You know, it's always good to see two bands actually get yeah. out there, you know, kill kill it without no, um, you know, yeah. it's not about um, lasers and smoke screens and backflips and all that. Give me a band, right. get out there, rock it out for a couple hours, and I'm a happy camper. So I'm looking forward there to that on July 2. All right, so let's get right into it, man. So, uh, you know, Ready for the World, popular 80s group. So why don't you tell us how the group got formed, and did the group go through any other names before deciding ultimately on Ready for the World? Yeah, we actually started in high school. Um, I've always been a sports guy, football guy, love football. I thought I was going to be a professional football player. (laughs) And I, uh, you know, stuck with football for a long time, but um, I started seeing how the young ladies would scream at these talent shows for these guys. I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I need to try my talent show skills out. So I didn't even know I could sing really that well. I just knew that if I followed a record on stage when I was a kid in a talent show, the girls would scream and I can get some phone numbers. So that was kind of how I got into music uh, and uh, always had a background coming from Clarksdale, Mississippi, of the blues. I grew up listening to blues like kids listen to uh, Drake <laughs> right now. I grew up listening to blues because I, I, I was born in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and my parents and my uncles would always play these stories of blues. And so it was already innately in me uh, to uh, my love for melody and my love for music. And so as I got older... Um, a buddy of mine, Gordon Strozier, when we were young, he was just starting off playing the guitar. And I was just blessed to be able to come home from football practice and get on my piano 
and create melodies and create hooks and create songs. And it's just a blessing that God gave me that developed into me being a natural songwriter. And so we kind of got together, and our love for music made us pretty much really delve into melodies and try to come up with some songs. And I was always the, the big, you know, melody guy and lyric guy and hook guy. And I also played bass guitar and all these different instruments. So I just learned. And so we formed the group in high school. Uh, we took guys from different other bands that were competing against us in talent shows. And we finally got them together. And we finally got a consistent group of guys, six guys that we felt was a good group. And uh, that's pretty much how Ready for the World was formed from high school talent shows. Um, we had different names. We went through, like, private boys' school, um, point blank. And we were just coming through a lot of different names as we were going through. And so I wrote a song called Ceramic Girl uh, on our first album. And there's a, a lyric in there that says, so nonchalant, laid back, and ready for the world. And our attorneys at the time were like, we really like that line of that song. What, what about you guys using ready for the world as your name? And uh, it was kind of long for me. <laughs> I was like, that's really a long name. I wanted something short and sweet to the point. And, uh, but I fiddle-faddled around with it and came to grips with, you know, hey, let's go ahead and roll with it. Cool, cool. So you mentioned um, you played football in high school. So you're from Flint, Michigan, where you grew up. Were you a uh, Lions fan growing up? No. <laughs> I've always been a Pittsburgh Steelers fan since I was like seven years old. Um, you know, football, like I said, that's still one of my major entertainments, along with boxing. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I'm a true-to-heart, true Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I had to ask, man, you being from uh, Michigan, it's just like I think it's the equivalent of if I run to somebody from a uh, – Texas, you know, I got to ask for they um, Cowboys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I am a U of M college uh, fan, but uh, that's about it for, for Michigan. <laughs> so uh, earlier today, you know, when I was prepping for the interview, you know, I'm hanging out with my uh, my son and my wife, and, you know, I showed them some of the early videos, you know, when you guys had the curl and the suits and everything, and – my son, you know, asked me, like, Dad, that's not Prince? I'm like, no, man, it's ready for the world. Like, you sure it's not Prince? <laughs> like, no, man, it's ready for the world. They just have, like, you know, some Prince influence. So, you know, right. obviously, like, you know, Prince was an influence on you guys as everybody was in the 80s. But who were some of those early, early influences that you guys had, you know, musically? Well, my musical influences really start with, like, George Clinton and the Funkadelics. I thought that George Clinton took music just, you know, past just the the hearing. Um, he brought the audio and the visual to life. He brought songs to life, like Flashlight, Knee Deep. And this guy was more than just music to me. He was an entertainer off stage and the props and the mothership. And so I was blown away with George Clinton's music and his his uh, creativity on stage. 
and then the vocal talents of uh, Stevie Wonder and his writing, uh, and Jeffrey Osborne for his vocal talent. Um, so those were some strong uh, foundational musical elements that are ingrained in me even still right now. Uh, Prince's genius and his melodies uh, was a major influence as well. Um, but you just had these guys like Stevie Wonder, man, that was just amazing to me, and the true talents. And those were some of my uh, my early musical influences. Dope, man. Yeah, I definitely can see. Um, I can I can see everybody mentioning your um, influences and. A lot of folks, you know, that I interview, they always bring up Stevie and, of course, the um, songs in the Kia Life album mm-hmm. and uh, Jeffrey Osborne, too. And, you know, for me, the older that I've gotten um, with music, actually going back, you know, and actually listening to albums and not just buying, like, a greatest hits collection or um, the hits, mm-hmm. man, you know, back in, the, back in your day, back in the 70s, back in the... 60s, like, you know, these cats were actually doing full-on albums, like, start to finish. Oh, it wasn't just about doing a single to be popular. Like, the entire album would rise right. start to finish. And somebody like Stevie, you know, you can even go on the songs in the key of life, and it's, it's album tracks that are better than a lot of folks' oh, stuff today. Now, I'm not going to say no names. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be PC, but... You know what I'm talking about when I say it, you know, songs from Stevie Wonder's albums that they weren't even good singles that are better than some stuff coming out today. So we'll just keep it at that. You know, I'm not going to blow up anybody's spot tonight. Right. But I totally agree with you. I totally agree. So how did you all end up on uh, MCA? Well, Universal, um, MCA, Universal, was a label that was pretty much launching a lot of uh, black artists at the time. Gerald Busby was the president of the black music portion of MCA. And so when reps go out and get records played for artists, they sometimes run into, you know, talent. And so there was a musical rep for MCA named Calvin Ventura who kind of hooked up with uh, some attorneys of ours that were trying to get us a record deal. So what Calvin did was use his his independent radio relationships to get uh, our songs heard before we were signed. And since he was already doing, you know, work for MCA, he thought he would let MCA listen to it. And they were blown away, and MCA wanted to sign us to a record deal because you know, he exposed us to MCA and let them hear our music, and they wanted to come out with that single tonight at that time, and that really uh, strengthened our relationship with MCA because they were in love with the music. Cool. So speaking of tonight, man, you know, I got to ask, was that um, written from personal experience or was it just, uh, you know, a song you know, wrote to get out there? Yeah, tonight is actually my passion for women. When you hear tonight, um, you hear a young man. I wrote that when I was like 15, 16 years old. And so you hear a young man and the way that he felt about girls that he wanted to get with when he was in high school or 
you know, women, period. And so tonight comes from that passion for women and putting myself in that mindset. And a lot of times when I write songs, I can see the visual. So it helps me write what I want to say. And so therefore tonight came from that passion of, of women and, and the girl of whomever I might have been wanting to holler at at that time. And that's where tonight came. It was really a deep song for such a young group. And I think that's one of the reasons why MCAA took that chance. They knew they would get a lot of uh, backlash, but they, Gerald Busby understood backlash and, and controversial songs raised a lot of people's attention. And uh, that's why tonight was our first single. Yeah, and it's still a, uh, still a classic joint. Uh, in those single days, it was... Um, you know, one of those ones that well, I think a lot of people used. Right, right. Yeah, no, I I get that a lot. I get that a lot. When we do tours and shows, a lot of guys say, hey, man, you got me through a lot of situations. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, you know, you guys are uh, tonight, you know, blows up. You go on to the second single, another classic joint, Oh, Sheila. So, what? you know, watching the video, um, Again, like, you know, I showed, it, I showed it to my um, wife and my son earlier, and so, you know, they both kind of asked me, like, you know, who was that using the British voice? And, like, well, why do you do that? Like, well, I asked him, you know, when I interview him. So, yeah, who, whose idea was it for you to use the British voice in the intro of uh, O'Sheela? Oh, well, actually, O'Sheela was our third single. Our second single was Deep Inside Your Love. Um. But when I did Oh Sheila, the voice is what I was already doing in high school. I would always mimic that voice just playing around. And so when I came up with Oh Sheila, the same voice that I would play around with in high school and around the house and just mimic, I thought that that would be a great intro to Oh Sheila to come off and do that voice. And uh, it, it exploded like that. It, it, it made a lot of people, they didn't know if we were black or British or English or what. And it just kind of, it appealed. It worked. Yes, sir. And shout out to um, Deep Inside Your Love, you know, uh, another uh, vicious flow jam from your catalog, man. Like I said, man, I, I really don't think that, um, like a lot of people, you get enough credit for your pin game which we're going to get into a little bit later mm. in the interview. But, yeah, man, for you to be that young and the way you were writing, you were writing like almost like somebody, you know, twice your age. So, yeah, I'm a right. huge fan. And I'll always put respect on your name for your pin game alone. So Thanks. shout out to Melvin Riley, man, for that amazing pin game. Before he was 21, back in 84, this man was writing certified panty droppers. So <laughs> shout out to <laughs> Mr. Uh, Riley. Thank you. So I appreciate it. You know, 85, man, you know, you're doing big things. When did you feel like you officially made it in the music industry? Um, Probably when we started doing Soul Train uh, to us. You know, Soul Train was like, if you make it on Soul Train, then you must be a star. And so, of course, the chart game you know, it's great because you're learning the business, but to actually be asked to be, you know, you're like, okay, well, we got to do these TV shows. Like, wait a minute, we're doing TV shows now. Now I'm starting to feel like something's about to happen. 
And so I think Soul Train is when I really realized that uh, we were uh, an effective group uh, artists that people were taking notice of. Cool, cool. So um, 86 hits, you guys dropped the Long Time Coming album featured Love You Down, another iconic song. So when you were writing and recording that one, did you have any idea that it would become so iconic and 34 years later you'd still be eating off the samples and the visuals from that You know, Love You Down was not my my first pick uh, for that first single on the second album. Mine was in my room, and me and the record company kind of went back and forth, and I was like, yeah, I think, I I mean, Love You Down, I wrote it. It sounds good, but I think in my room is the joint. And so a couple of months went by, and uh, Lowell Silas was the A&R at the time, and he said, man, I think I'm just going to go with my gut and go with Love You Down. And I'm glad he did. And I don't know what In My Room could have done, and it was never released as a single, but Love You Down is still today a landmark of all time slow song. And i got to be honest, I didn't know that it would do all that it's doing and have done. I, I didn't know that. I didn't expect that out of that song. Uh, as much as I did thinking In My Room would be the one. Oh, yeah, man, you can go anywhere in the world and, you know, play Love You Down, and pe- people are going um, <laughs> to right. know it. And I, but I think when I, re- when I researched it, it's been sampled, like, at least 30-plus times. It's been covered numerous times. So, yeah, that's your, uh, one of your iconic joints. Yeah. So, of your yeah. Family, once again, there's a musical urban legend that that I've heard for years. So the song Come Over that you wrote for your label mates, 4x4, was supposed mm-hmm. to go to a new edition, but the label thought it was too risque for any at the time. Can you confirm or deny that? Um, I've, never, I've never heard that one before. Uh, Capitol Records actually called me and wanted me to produce a group that was on Capitol 4x4. And so it was never a question, you know, I don't know if someone said that or not, but that's the first time I've ever heard that uh, that new edition was supposed to come over because um, at the time, you know, we were buddies anyway. So they could have called me and said, hey, you know, uh, I, I like this song, come over, but that was never uh, a done. So it never really ever got to that situation. It was always a, a four-by-four song from the beginning. Cool, so I can finally put that rumor to rest. Cause I, I, I forgot who I, where I heard that, but yeah, they were saying okay. that it was um, that was supposed to go to them because you know you when you hear it, you would think that it's a new edition song based on how the lead singer was singing. I'm like, nah, that's you know four by four. Thank you for yeah, that. I, I can I can hear new edition doing it as well, but at the time, yeah, they that was never a question. So who were some of the early artists you toured with back in the day? I, I remember hearing um some point you guys toured with Bobby Brown before he became Bobby Brown mm-hmm. during his first album, King of Sage. Yeah, yeah. We toured with Bobby uh, for a year, year and a half. You know, that's my brother, that's family. 
Uh, we've toured with Luther Vandross, uh, man, New Edition, Jets, uh, uh, man. <laughs> it is just like a, a plethora of artists that we've toured with. Um, the guy, um, man, I could go on and on. So we've toured with a massive amount of artists. Wow. And you said Luther. So when you tour with Luther, man, I got to ask, do you guys ever just um, sit on the side of the stage and just watch him do his uh, his thing? Yeah, that was our first tour with Luther Vandross. We weren't even uh, good out the basement from coming up with songs that we were put on tour with Luther. It was a shock was that they asked us to come on tour at that time because we weren't even, I think we had to night out, and I think O'Sheela was starting to make noise. And when we went out with Luther, we were kind of unknown but starting to get known. And so it was a shock. And we would just, uh, you know, after we would do our set, come back out and, and look at the professionalism of how he ran his organization as well as his performance. And so I learned a lot from Luther Vandross' tour and from Luther. Um, he would walk us out to the stage a lot of times as well, you know, as we were going out, and he would just walk with us going up to the stage. And so I learned a lot from Luther. And rest in peace to one of the um, all-time oh. greatest singers of any genre, period, no question no about question it. About it. So 88 rolls around, and 88 is a huge year for MCA Records. I mean, with you know the Heartbreak album, New Edition, Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cool, Guys' mm-hmm. debut. I mean, MCA just had the joint on lock in 88. And you guys released the Rough, Rough and Ready album in 88, which mm-hmm. had the joint My Girlie with the dope singer right. version and another ballad, Gently. Now, do you feel like mm. MCA underpromoted the third and fourth albums for you guys? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, the story behind MCA is the leaving of Gerald Busby. Gerald Busby was the success story behind black music at MCA. Mm. There would have never been the success that you saw coming out of the 80s from MCA if there weren't a Gerald Busby. Um, Gerald Busby had that ear as well as he had marketing. He understood how to make it a, make you a star. He understood, understood music getting played on the radio. And so when Gerald Busby was asked uh, by, in, by Motown to come and head up their department, he, I guess, maybe battled back and forth about it and then he called me up and he said, uh, I'm going to take the job at Motown. And he wanted to take Ready for the World with him. But we were making so much money for MCA at the time, that was uh, basically impossible. They weren't going to let him take a platinum group with him to Motown, which I would have loved to have gone with Joe Busby because he was a catalyst behind the algorithms of things happening for Ready for the World. But MCA stopped him from taking us. And so a new guy comes in um, and didn't quite know how to position radio airplay, in my opinion, 
um, did not understand the things that Gerald Busby did to make the artist a success. At the same time, before Gerald Busby left, he signed Guy. He signed a lot of groups before he left. He wasn't able to take with him. And so when you get a lot of artists, not everybody's going to get the attention that they deserve at the right time. And Ready for the World was selling platinum and gold without a lot of promotion. So MCA started putting their emphasis on new artists um, and saying, hey, Ready for the World, I guess they were looking at us as, hey, they'll go ahead and win anyway. And they didn't promote and market Ready for the World on the third, on the third album, on the uh, My Girlie album. They kind of took it for granted and tried to develop this war of artists and see which one would stick. And in this music industry, you have to do what's called marketing and promotion for any artist for them to blow up. And no doubt. Yeah, MCA dropped the ball on Ready for the World, that third and fourth album, by not promoting and marketing us right, as well as Gerald Busby leaving the label. And that's what happened to the uh, major sh- success as Ready for the World was climbing. Um, the quarterback, which was Gerald Busby, ended up leaving MCA and going to Motown. Yeah, because even even going back and you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, listening to albums start to finish. You know, I went back and listened to um, Rough and Ready earlier this week. You know, start to finish, and it's very, um, to me, like very New Jack inspired. You know, the up-tempo mm-hmm. tracks. You know, the songs and everything. You guys show maturity, right. and like MCA actually had a, you know, a band because you guys weren't a group. You guys were a band who could play your own instruments, who could get down and kill it live. And it's like you know, they just kind of dropped the ball, and they shouldn't have. So if you guys right. never heard right. of Ready or the fourth album, uh, Straight Down to Business, mm-hmm. check it out. You know, streaming platforms, get to them. So you guys do the third album, you do the fourth album, 94 hits, you release your solo album, another underrated mm-hmm. project in my opinion, Ghetto Love, which had the singles, Who's Is It? Another certified panty dropper that came in handy in my single days, and <laughs> What Makes a Man, What Is She Known As Woman. You also right. had some, killer, some other killer soldiers on that project. One of my joints right. was Spoil You and the title track, Ghetto Love. What do you remember about recording those two songs? Man, I tell you, I was uh, in a zone. I uh, was in a zone writing that album. And there was no president at MCA at the time. So, again, when I speak of the marketing and promotion that you have to have in order to have success, you gotta, it's almost like a Barry Sanders playing for the Detroit Lions. Uh, you can be the best running back in the world, but if you don't have an offensive line, if you don't have the first, the right things in place, that running back, even though he's the greatest running back, will not get a champion ring on that particular year because they don't have the right things in place. Well, when I did the Ghetto Love album, they didn't have a, a president at all. Um, Raul Roach was the president. We started the album, and Raul Roach ended up, leaving for whatever reason 
Um, I don't want to get into anybody's personal business, but for what that reason was, Raul Roach was no longer the president. And uh, I strongly believe that Raul Roach would have stayed there. Uh, the Ghetto Love album would have even had more success because he was a president that knew what he was doing. Um, and so he understood music and radio airplay. So when he was no longer in the middle of my solo album, we went for a year without a president over A&R. So I got caught up in the mix of uh, issues that Universal, MCA, excuse me, didn't have in place. And at the same time, a lot of artists' projects were getting just uh, killed. I remember talking with uh, Ronnie DeVoe when they were doing the new B DVD, DVD album. And, you know, we talked about it at the time, how MCA was not handling their business, even not even with the BBD album, with the Melvin Riley album, with uh, Patti LaBelle's album. It was a mess. And so the Ghetto Love album got caught up in the riffraff of MCA not having an A&R a guy, not having a lot of things in place. And they put their records out, but they didn't have the marketing game together. And that's what happened with the Ghetto Love album. And I still have a lot of love for that album. And people are like, man, I'm, not su I'm surprised that this didn't blow up and that didn't blow up. And it takes more than a great song to blow up. Just like yeah. it takes more than a great running back to win a championship, you have to have that team in, in place. You told me something I didn't know. I didn't know that um, MCA was going through that. I just figured it was a um, bad promotion because there were a lot of strong albums between Silas Records and, you know, the parent label, MCA, right. in 94. I mean, even though, you know, I was in sixth grade at the time, mm -hmm. you know, you had, you had BBD's second album, you had Ralph Tresvant's second album, you had Damian Hall's debut, which right. was a very simple project. You had Dread Project, and, like, they totally just didn't market stuff the way it should have been um, – Right. Marketing. And even though it's like, you know, even though I'm not in the industry, it seemed like during that time at 93 to 94, they were solely focusing on Jodeci and um, Mary's second album. I mean, which, which are both great albums, but right. they didn't give right. everyone else the same opportunities that they should have had. So, you know, once again, folks, if you haven't heard Melvin's first solo album, Ghetto Love, check it out. It's available on all streaming platforms. I mean, just dope slow jams, panty droppers for music heads. He has a dope, really, really dope song with uh, Chucky Booker. Right. On well, uh, Love's okay. Gonna Hit You. Yep. So, you know, music heads, check that joint out. If you've never heard Melvin's first solo album, Ghetto Love. So as a writer, you know, you're writing for everybody. Were there were there any songs from your solo album, the first one that you would have given to another artist if the price had been right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, as, as Biggie say, I got techniques dripping out my butt cheeks. <laughs> That's how I felt uh, writing these songs. So it's like if you want the song, you can get because I'm going to write another one tonight. You know, so when you're in that zone, you can write and keep writing, and people are like, 
I had a buddy ask me one time, man, do you have a midget in this room underneath the desk writing these songs with you because you keep coming up with these hits? And when I'm in a zone, that's just how I write. So I would have loved to have done more writing for other artists, um, but that's a political game within itself as well. Um, yeah. But but no, I never would deny anybody. Uh, if they wanted a song, I would definitely never deny them that song. So, um, 2,000 hits, you quietly dropped the second solo album, Bedroom Stories, where you linked up with uh, Jamie Foxx for another uh, mm-hmm. slow jam favorite that I use constantly in my DJ days as a song, <laughs> Scream and Shout. So how did you link up with Jamie for that joint? You know, I met Jamie at his birthday party in uh, Beverly Hills, um, can't quite remember the exact year, but I went to his birthday party, and we just hooked up from there. I met him at his party, and about three days later, we were at the studio doing some songs. And um, I was always a big fan of Jamie's comedy, and he was always a big fan of Ready for the World. And so it was just a great fit. We both understood, and he's a very talented artist musically as well as a pianist. So he already got it and gets it. And so we got in the studio, and that project was a full independent project that I was just doing on my own just to keep the audience understanding that, you know, I'm still writing, I'm still doing what I'm doing. And so it was just a great thing that, uh, that myself and Jamie hooked up and, and was able to do something on that, on that project. And you also had a, um, a revamped version of London Jones' Baby Chores Tonight, another song you wrote on that album. So was it tough changing the arrangements to make it sound different from London's version? Oh, yeah. Um, Lowell had wanted me to write something on London Jones' album that they didn't promote. And uh, the hook, Baby Get Yours, um, I had given to London Jones and written for myself. But then I said that would be a good song for him to do. But then I went ahead and redid it again on my independent project because I just think that that's a topic that a lot of guys hadn't talked about. And so I said, well, hey, I'll use it on my solo project since I wrote it anyway. And it's another good project, folks. Uh, Bedroom Stories, Melvin Riley. Check it out on all streaming uh, platforms. Like, you know, I'm going to keep promoting this brother's music because, again, I'm going to say it again. Ready for the World, Melvin Riley, are much more than Love You Down, Oh Sheila, and Tonight. They have a plethora of music, which brings me to, you know, this next little shout-out. 96 is Freak Me, and 2004, she said she wants some, and you stay dropping singles on awesome platforms as well. Telephone Freakin' and a couple more joints, so... With 2020, are you ever going to do another album, or are you just going to do the um, single singles game from now on? Oh, no. I'm actually going to drop one. I have uh, one in the making right now that really should go to radio because the, um, the songs I'm holding off for the right situation um, before I release it independently. Um, it, has to be, it has to be the right situation for me to go ahead and do it. Um, if I'm going to do it on a major label, 
it would have to be something where I'm guaranteed real promotion, real radio. Um, so before anybody hears it, like it's already, I'm probably 10 songs into the project right now. Um, but we're going to hold off releasing it uh, because we want to get the right situation with the right major. If that does not happen, then, yeah, you will definitely hear the full album uh, released independently. Whatever you drop, man, like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, man. You know, I always type in. Uh, you're one of the artists that I always type in uh, on iTunes just to see if you're dropping something new. And it's, it's one of those things to where when folks always say that R&B is dead, and I'm like, you know, it's not dead. You just have to look for it. It's plenty of R&B out there. And, you know, some of these artists that you were wondering, whatever happens, I'm they're washed up. I'm like, they're not washed up. And, you know, nothing happened to them. They're just doing musically, they're doing music differently. So you have to search a bit, you know. Right. Well, I blame, I blame record labels. Um, I, the record labels, the black music department's uh, executives, you know, have to stand up and demand real marketing and real promotion for artists, uh, even legendary artists that have been out for years that still have great voices, great music. It's going to take the executives of those departments to put together a real campaign and get real radio airplay. I applaud um, some of the artists that have come back, like Charlie Wilson. I applaud that team because Charlie Wilson is a great talent, always has been, and they continue to get him real video airplay for people to hear. So imagine if you have more teams like the promotional team that gets uh, Charlie Wilson played on a lot of your artists and you would see R&B come back in a major way when you have a major, a lot of uh, R&B artists getting radio to play, then you're going to hear real hits again. So it starts at the record companies, and once they put that back into place the right way, you will hear a lot more from a lot of artists that you guys have loved for years. Oh, yeah, to to totally agree. I mean, I, I can remember a time when I was growing up you know, in the 90s, how, like, every week there was, like, a new release from an R&B group. I mean, so much so that, you know, it was hard to keep up because they were constantly mm -hmm. dropping music and constantly, you know, promoting stuff. And um, <clears throat> the thing was it was actually quality music. It wasn't just about, you know, selling. Well, of course you want to sell, but... It wasn't just about, you know, having one single and the album was trashed. You can just, you know, stream the single and, you know, begin. No, you know, you actually had quality albums from start to finish 85% right. of the time from every single record that was dropping, you know, in the 80s all the way through the late, through the late 90s. And that's what I mean. Yeah, it was a combination between a great record company like a Gerald Busby meeting a great artist. When you got those two two things working together, you have success. When you got a record company that understands music and has an ear and they're like, Oh yeah, that's a hit record. We gotta go after that. Well then you have a great situation. If you're missing a great record R A and R or a great record 
rep, you got a problem. If you have a great song and that rep is not in place, you have a problem. If you have a, a, any algorithms from that record company that's not pushing that record, there's going to be an issue with the world hearing that song. And it can be a great song. It can be a great song, but you definitely have to have those elements in place. And that's a, a major part of R&B music and why it's not on the rise as it was back in the 80s and 90s. And it's a shame, too. So the late MC Bree, who also made, who made an appearance on your solo album, was also from Michigan. Did you know him growing up right. before you guys got signed? No, I, did, I grew up on the north side, and uh, MC Bree grew up by Northwestern. So he was more northwest, I was more northern. And, you know, when you grow up and you go to a certain high school, you don't know a lot of guys from the other high school like you do your own. So as we got older, uh, we met. Once he signed with Ishaban, we were so proud that there was another guy from Flint that was putting it in like that. And so we just hooked up at the studio, and he had a lot of respect for, for me, and I have a lot of, had a lot of respect for him. And we just figured it would be a smart thing for us to hook up and get in the studio together. And we did that. And uh, I think he killed it on Cutting Me Loose. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was part of the solo record as well. So I had nothing but love and respect for MC Breed. And rest in peace, brother. Yes, indeed. All right, so you gave some history. You know, we, we, got, we got into those, those ominous facts about your career. You know, we got to get into a couple of hard questions, man, before I close this interview out. So let's go right. ahead and get into three okay. really, three really hard questions where you got to put your thinking cap on. <laughs> so, um, you know, I know Ready for the World has a story to tell. Like I said, I, I know that you guys are much more than just three songs. So I'm big on biopics. Right. That's like my favorite film genre. So if we ever get a biopic on Ready for the World, who would you pick to portray yourself on screen? Mm, I would have to say, um, and you know what, Luke uh, has already done the new edition, but I ran into him at the bowling alley in California, and he was singing Love You Down. Um, but uh, no, I couldn't, uh, at the point in time right this second, it would be hard for me to pick and sit there. I would have to actually do a casting of of a bunch of guys to really say, okay, I get it, because it takes more than just the look. It takes the the uh, attitude and the whole nine. So that would be a hard one to pick. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think Luke can pull it off. Well, I might be biased, like, you know, I'm a huge um huge Luke James fan, and I mean, like, I've been, as somebody else that I've been big up in since 06 when he was singing background for um, Tyrese, and, you know, I always tell folks, like, you haven't even heard half of what that dude can do. Vocal. Right, right. I mean, like, right. him playing Johnny Gill was just, like, maybe 10% of his singing talent. When and you we saw him live, I saw him live back in 20. 14, and this cat slayed Donny Hathaway, a song for you, and the Hathaway register, I was like, yeah, man, it's over. Cause you wouldn't think, yeah. you know, that he could 
sing it, sing it that well. Just like Donnie saying, shout out to Luke James, one of the best singers in the game yeah. right now in his age bracket. Right. Right. All right. So it's eighty. It's eighty bowling alley. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I said him because we were at the bowling alley, and he just he did love you down and just got got it going. <laughs> All right, so the year is 1984, and the band has a chance to open up for the Jacksons on the Victory Tour or Prince and the Revolution on the Purple Rain Tour. You have to you have the deciding vote on who you guys are going to open up for. Who are you going to pick? Oh, definitely Prince and the Revolution. Definitely, without a doubt. That was a quick answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> I've asked that question before to people, and they're always like, they they get stuck, and I'm like, well, man, you know, they're both big tours, man, so you got to think about which joints you'd want to um, open up for, and who, you know, who would you want to see um, live and just to be around that um, experience between the um, two. I mean, I got to tell folks, man, I'm no 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 shade to Mike, but I just, I've always been more been more into Prince. You know, I'm big into um, ballads and slow jams, and you know, Mike have your tempo stuff, but right, it's nothing in Mike's catalog that can come close to some of the Prince. It's nothing in Mike's right. catalog touch some of the Prince's slow jams. Like, and that's just my like opinion. Right. No, right. right. But you know, scandalous, insatiable, do me baby, oh, adore. Yeah. Like Prince can go on for days Never. and days and days. <laughs> This is All right, so this last question is going to be like I'm, I'm a, you know you might, you might show your age, but what do you consider to be the greatest moment in basketball? The greatest moment? Yeah, in your opinion, the greatest moment. The greatest moment in basketball, I think, would be uh, I think when Michael Jordan was uh, on his last leg. He was sick. He was ill. And he mustered up enough energy to come back, not only high score, but also to win the game. And uh, I think that showed a lot of depth. I thought that showed what passion is all about in the game of the NBA. And so I think that's one of the greatest moments in the NBA uh, to me. Yeah, I'm 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 gonna agree that um the so-called flu game is probably one of the um if not the greatest moment in, in NBA history. Right. I, I grew up in the um I grew up in the Kobe era and grew up in the LeBron era, but um yeah that that yeah. flu game is one of the greatest moments of all time. Yeah. All right, folks, yeah. the legendary, the highly talented, the underrated Melvin Riley lead singer. I'm ready for the world on the line today. I hope you guys learned a lot because I sure did. Um, I highly urge you folks to hit up all streaming platforms, be it Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. Check out the entire Ready for the World discography. Check out Melvin's solo albums. Check out Melvin's solo singles. Real music, whether you're into funk, whether you want a ballad, whether you want a slow jam, Ready for the World has something for you. And if you really want to see how these brothers get down, next Friday, July 10th, 9 p.m. on pay-per-view, 
They'll be performing at the Funk Corona live show with Morris Day the Time, Cameo, and the Mary Jane Girls. Once again, next Friday, Funk Corona Live featuring Morris Day and the Time, Cameo, the Mary Jane Girls, and Ready for the World featuring Mr. Melvin Riley Jr. on pay-per-view for, I believe, 20 bucks, And you can check out Fight TV, fight.tv, or download the app to, you know, find out more about that. So is there anything else you want to add, brother? And where can fans find you on social media? Well, they can find me at the official Melvin Riley on Facebook and on Instagram. And they can hit me up on my personal page as well, which is just Melvin Riley on Facebook. And I just want to say to the fans, you know, you are the true reasons of why I do what I do. I love great music, and I like giving it to you guys. So I just want to thank the fans for the years and years of love and support that they've given me. God bless you, and I ain't going to stop. I'm going to keep bringing you the hits. Well, there you have it, folks. Once again, this is Derek Dunn. You've been in the mix with Mr. Melvin Riley, Jr. I'm ready for the world. Till the next time, in the words of the late, great Maurice Wright, keep your head to the sky. Done out. Entertainment interview straight, no chaser. This is Reviews and Done.